Well, good morning, everyone. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Paul Graham, lead pastor here at Lakeside Church, and welcome, visitors. When I look out at all these people, now I know how many people should be here on Sunday. So I'm watching you now. Next week, I expect you all back. Um, We're continuing in our series. The way it worked out in Galatians, and I don't plan this, it's just the way the Holy Spirit does it. Um, We we landed uh, in the beginning part of Galatians chapter 3 last week, which was dealing with Christ being a curse on the tree. And then the next part of Galatians talks about the blessing and the promise that we have of Abraham, uh, which talks about, essentially, you will see the connection, talks about the promise that we have in the resurrection of Christ. And so it's not a special Easter message, so to speak, as much as it is just what the Holy Spirit led us to in Galatians, which uh, is perfect for where we're at on Easter Sunday. And I do understand kids are here, and uh, it's not specifically a very kid-friendly message. So if you have wiggles and you have to stand up and walk around, that's fine, kids. You won't distract me. Um, just keep it to a dull roar, and I'll keep going. Uh, but this is important, and if, if, if you're five or six or older, you'll get what I, I'm talking about. You guys, you're smart. I know you're smart kids, and you'll know what I'm talking about here. So, uh, so over, the, over the last few weeks, we've been, we've been traveling through basically the Apostle Paul's letter to the Church of uh, Galatia, uh, which is the region of modern-day Turkey. And, and Paul is writing to these churches uh, that are in the area of Turkey because after hearing the good news of the gospel and who Jesus was, what we've been praising this morning, uh, that and what he had done, saving them by faith, these, these people were being convinced that perhaps they needed an extra religion of their own to work on as well, that they shouldn't have only hope in Jesus, but should also put hope in their own works or the works of the law or religion. And that's what Galatians is all about. It's basically Paul arguing against a man-made religion or even against the works of the law as a means to re- for redemption, as a means of making ourselves qualified before God. And so that's what he's been arguing against. And Paul wants to show them the foolishness of this and the danger of this. And he's done this by comparing the law or human effort on the one hand and the gospel of Jesus on the other. He keeps comparing the law to the gospel. And he's making this argument over and over and over again to show how futile religion is compared to the relationship that we can have with Jesus because of what he's done on the cross. And and that's as brief a summary as possible I I can cram in. But if you miss those messages, I hope you go back and listen to them. But it's one argument after another, one comparison after another. Paul basically says, look, do you want me to prove this to you theologically? I can do it theologically. You want me to do it practically? I can do it practically. You want me to do it historically? I can do it historically. You want me to do it experientially? I'll do it experientially. And we've looked at all those things. We've looked at doctrinal issues, theological issues, experiential issues, historical issues, practical issues of the gospel compared to the law. And Paul just keeps going in his argument against the law. Last week, specifically, Paul's last great argument against the law was that it was a curse. And Paul pointed to the Galatians. And if you were here, you remember he pointed us back to uh, the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy 27 and 28, where we saw in the most explicit description of what life without God would result in, the curse of life without God. And you'll remember I read through parts of most of Galatians 28. And it's ugly what life looks like without God. We are cursed apart from God, and it is the law that tells us that we are separated from God and under that curse. But after taking us down into the horror of the curse, Paul brought us back up, and he showed us how even the curse of the law was no match for Jesus. In fact, Jesus came with one purpose in mind, and that was to take that curse on himself so that we would no longer be cursed, 
And in exchange for that curse, he gives us his righteousness. And we talked about the great exchange. It's not only that Jesus takes our curse away. It's not only that we're in the courtroom of God that we get declared not guilty and we're allowed to go free. That would be amazing. But it's not just that. It's that we are declared not guilty, the curse is removed, and then a medal of honor is pinned on our chest, and we walk out into a parade going down the street in our honor. We're not just declared not guilty, we also gain the righteousness of Christ. It's incredible exchange that takes place. And we concluded at 3.13 last week, which was Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So Jesus hanging on a tree, Jesus crucified on a cross, taking on all the sin that we have committed and suffering the consequences of the curse so that we could be called righteous before God. That's what Good Friday is all about, right? That's what we were here on Friday celebrating. That's Good Friday. But the story doesn't end at the cross. And as Paul is concluding that third argument of the superiority of faith in Jesus over the works of the law or our own religious works or our own goodness, he heads right into the next argument. Jesus hung on a tree for a purpose, yes, to become a curse for us and to take on our sins, but not only that, so that the blessing of Abraham might come to us and we would receive the promise God has made. And so Paul wants us now to see how and why the hopelessness of the law or the hopelessness of our own religious efforts are not equal to the promise that God gave to Abraham. And now that we have that promise through Jesus, it is far better to have a promise than a law. And that's what Easter Sunday is about. Easter Sunday is about the sign of that promise. It's about the reality of that promise that we have that has nothing to do with the law. It has to do with a promise. And our faith and our hope is in a promise. And so that's what we're going to look at in the next few verses and see why Paul says we're better to trust in the promise of blessing rather than in works of the law. And he's going to point us back again, this time to a time before the law, to Abraham, when the law was still generations from being shown and show us the power of God's promise. And that's verses 15 to 18 that we're going to look at this morning. Let me just pray before I read God's word. Father God, we're looking into your word now because you want us to see the promise that has been made and the promise that you're going to keep. And Father, you want us to see this. You want the kids here to see this as well, that they know that they have a God that has promised and he's faithful to his promise. And so I pray that as we read your scripture and understand what the Apostle Paul is teaching by your Holy Spirit, that it would, you would open our eyes and our hearts and that we would see it and come away encouraged again in the hope that we have in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. And now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So as I've said, Paul gets into some pretty technical arguments here. And this is not really technical, but the language can be a little bit cumbersome. 
And so we're just going to work through it in three parts, really simply, to understand what is the intent that Paul is trying to get across here to the Galatians. And he starts out, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it's only a man's covenant, yet when it's been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Well, now look at Paul here, the old softy. He's found another term other than fool, finally, for the Galatians. Uh, He's been calling them fools for the last couple paragraphs, but now he says, you know, brothers, sisters, you know, he's, he's softening in his tone here. And uh, he's still pretty passionate, but it's a different kind of passion here. You know, so he says, look, my siblings, my brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm speaking to you now just in human terms, he says. Think about what a promise is or, or what a covenant is, a, a sacred promise. Even when we're just talking about human promises or human agreements, right? Once we have a promise, once we ratify a promise, once a promise has been made and established, you can't just set it aside or change it, Right? You know, if, if your parents tell you that, you know, you're going to go to Disneyland and they promise that you're going to go to Disneyland, they're not allowed to change it to Wally World, right? You, you got to go to Disneyland because that's what they promised, okay? Once it's been agreed upon, then it's settled, and that's just between us humans, you know, or, or, or to make it sort of something that Paul might be pointing to here that would be more, more relevant. It's, it's, you can imagine your, your, your favorite rich uncle has just died and, and you're meant to inherit this incredible estate from this uncle of yours and he's promised it to you and he's written it down in his will and everybody knows the promise. But when you go to get your inheritance, there's a judge there and he says, all this that your uncle has promised to you is yours. You know, if you go and finish university and you maintain straight A's and if you go into this line of work and you take care of his 212 cats, did he mention the cats? Um, right? Like the judge can't do that. You go there and you say, no, you can't change the promise. You can't change what's been agreed upon. I just get all the stuff. There, there is no going to university and cats, right? It's just, I get it. Once a promise has been made and ratified, the judge can't ignore it and he can't add conditions to it. And we all understand this. And this is all Paul is saying. He's saying just even amongst us, you know, mortals, amongst humans, just with human relationships, we understand that once a promise has been made, a promise is made. And so we can follow that. And so then it goes on. It says, so what's the promise? It says in verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And as Paul has said, it's the promise to Abraham that came before the law and is better than the law. So let's just take a minute to look at the promise and how it was made, because this is profoundly significant. This is what Paul is pointing back to. Every time he makes reference to Abraham and to this promise, this is what he's pointing back to. And this is what he knows he's triggering in the minds of the believers who understand the scripture. He's pointing back to something that's important for us to really get into our hearts and understand. God wants us to know what he reveals here. Just as in Galatians 3, 10 to 13, Paul's was to point back to the law in Deuteronomy 28. Now Paul is pointing back to a promise God made. This is like almost 650 years before the law that God made this promise. And here's the promise. In Genesis 15, 1 is where you find that promise. God made a covenant. He made an agreement and he bound himself to it by having it ratified or having it confirmed. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, who's Abraham. He's just changed his name later, came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham said, O Lord, God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? So Abraham didn't have a son of his own yet. And so he's saying to God in faith, a little bit of faith to start with, you know, you keep telling me, God, about this promise and an inheritance, but I don't even have a son yet. So Abram's trying to figure out what this promise is of God's. And so 
God continues. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, only born in my house is the one not born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's where it happened. Okay, this was the moment of the promise. And there's lots of things that are bound up in the promise, and God elaborates on the promise, but this is the moment when it happened. We look at Easter as the pivotal moment in history for mankind, don't we? Christ on the cross and the resurrection, and we say that's the pivotal moment in history, and we rightly should, but this is a really close runner-up because this is the moment in which Abraham trusted in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that set in motion the whole plan that gets us to Jesus and gets us to where we are today. And so, yes, the cross is that pivotal moment in history, but here is the runner-up. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. It was the faith of Abraham that set all this in motion. He simply trusted the promise of God. So God gave Abraham a covenant. God said, Abram, you're going to have a child. You're going to have people like the stars of heaven, and it's going to be a fantastic blessing that's going to come through these people. And Abraham believed him. And now it's important to see here that there wasn't anything for Abraham to do. He just listened. It was just a promise, right? God didn't say, now you and I are going to work out a deal, Abram, right? I'm going to tell you the things that you have to do in order for this promise to come true. There was nothing for Abraham to do. He just had to listen and say, okay, I believe you. And God counted it to him as righteousness, and the promise was his. There was nothing for him to do. He just stood there and listened. It was God saying, I will, I will, I will, I will. And Abraham's only involvement in this was, okay, you will, I believe you. It's a promise, and Abraham just believed it. And that's important to understand. And then you look at the sealing or the ratifying of the promise. In Genesis 15, it goes on, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. I give to you this land to possess it. And he said, Abram said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So it's like, okay, God, you promised, I believe it, but how do I know all this is going to happen? And then look at what God does in 9 to 10 of Genesis 15. He says, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all of these to him and he cut them in two and laid them each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Okay, so now this is weird. What's going on here? Why is Paul pointing us back to this promise and this ratification of a promise? Why is he he talking about a, a ratified promise? What's happening we, we don't really understand. Abraham has these animals and he cuts them in two. That's kind of gross. And he takes the two birds and he kills them and he puts them out there and he separates the pieces apart and he drags one half one way and he drags the other half another way. So as there's this sort of aisle down between the two parts of the animals. And, and we don't know what's going on, but Abraham knows and God knows. This is, a, this is an, an ancient Eastern covenant ritual. And Abraham knows exactly what's going on. When, when two tribes or two families make an agreement that is meant to last, it was made in blood. It was an agreement in blood. And this is important to point forward to Christ. And you set up these pieces of animal in this manner, and then the two covenant keepers walk down the middle of the aisle together between the animal pieces. Okay? And... And it showed their commitment to the covenant that they were making. 
Now, despite the similarities, I do not recommend this for weddings, okay? No bloody carcasses on either side of the aisle for weddings. Although it is very similar, isn't it? Right? You go down an aisle to honor a covenant. I'm not talking about the condition of your marriages or anything. I mean, you guys can sort that out or come see me later. But but both parties would walk down this aisle in blood to signify their commitment to it, essentially saying... In essence, as we go down here, if we were to break this covenant, one of us was to break the covenant, we see how we're going to end up, right? Like this is the consequences of covenant breaking. So that's important that we see that. But this is how the covenant gets ratified. This is important for us to understand. In verse 17, it says, It came about that when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. And now you know what this burning lamp and this smoking furnace represents, right? This is God. This is God come down to meet with Abraham. It represents the presence of God. And who went between the pieces? God went between the pieces. But nowhere does it say that Abraham went through the pieces with God. God went through the pieces of the covenant keeping, of the ratification of the promise by himself. This was God making a covenant with God. Abraham just had to watch He just had to listen. He just had to trust. He just had to believe. But God said, you set up the covenant and I will go through the aisle. I will go myself down here. I will make a covenant with myself. This is not an agreement between you and me, Abraham, because you will not be able to keep it. This is an agreement between me and me, and I will keep it. God was binding himself to his own covenant. And if you want to know whether the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional, then all you need to know is that it was God's own promise to himself and God bound himself to keeping his own covenant. Abraham never went through the covenant pieces in the promise that Paul is referring to. So listen then, if Abraham was saved by faith and God bound himself to that kind of covenant, then that covenant was ratified permanently for good. And so God bound himself to his own covenant, and once it was ratified, and ratified by blood, it could never be set aside, it could never be added to, it could never be changed. It was done. This was God's covenant with himself. No one was ever going to change it. You think it's hard to change a covenant that you've made just between man and a legal court? Try and change this covenant that God has made with himself. It'll be unchanged forever. And then look, it went into effect immediately because right in verse 6, even before this happened, it was in effect. As soon as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness. It was that fast. The covenant was made, Abraham believed, the covenant went into effect, and it's never stopped being in effect. And Paul says that promise established by God for Abraham and for his descendants specifically, one descendant will be the fulfillment of that promise. That's what Paul's argument is here. That's why he's pointing us back. That's why he's talking about promises ratified. He's talking about the promise made to Abraham. He wants us to go back and understand this, that God made a promise to himself and God will not break his covenant. So he goes on and he says... And this promise, he says, he does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. And now he's talking about the offspring. It's like, who are the inheritors of this promise? God's made this amazing promise. Who inherits it? And here again, Paul takes pains to reveal very explicitly the plan of God at work as revealed in Scripture. And he takes what the Jewish people have known and believed for centuries, and he sort of peels back the veil that's laying over it. 
or he peels back the veil that's lain over their eyes so that they can see what many of them have been missing. He says, look at this word seed. God did not say seeds, meaning through many offspring or referring to many, but God said seed referring to one. And it's kind of interesting and it's helpful for us that in both Hebrew and Greek, the original languages used here and English, that the word seed, just like in English, can be singular or plural, right? We can say, look at that big bag of seed, and we mean all the seed that is in there, plural. Or we can say, look at that seed in my hand, a singular seed. It's one of those funny words that can be plural and singular, and it's the same in the Greek, and it's the same in Hebrew, and Paul is, is using that. He's saying, God wasn't talking about plural seed. He was talking about a singular seed who was to come. Paul's illustrating actually how it works And it works in all three languages. But basically what he's saying is is the promise was made to Abraham was meant to be specifically fulfilled in one offspring. Yes, Abraham's descendants could and would inherit promises and would inherit the promise. But only eventually, Paul is saying, is this promise fully understood and known in one offspring. That is Christ Jesus. That is the Messiah. That is the anointed one. And so you might think again, you might, wait a minute, like Paul's just being clever here again. This is just Paul who really knows his Bible inside and out, and he's just being clever with his argument to make his point, right? He's just got to play on words here like he did with Abraham's faith being counted to righteousness, except we know that that Jesus actually backed Paul up on that, right? Because Jesus said that Abraham saw my day and was glad, right? That the gospel, the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. So, So that wasn't a clever, just a clever argument of Paul's. That was actually true. And the same is here true. This isn't just Paul playing cute with a word and the promise. This is Paul showing what the promise has always been since before the law. This is Paul showing what the promise has been since God made that promise to Abraham. And I'll show you, this is Paul showing what the promise has been since even before Abraham, since even Adam and Eve. Because God's promise has always been that there would be one offspring by which mankind would receive their promises. Remember in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve fall, and God has come and confronted them, and he's cursed the serpent, and then he's explaining to Adam and Eve what's going to happen to them. And he says to Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. God promised to Eve that there would be one singular he who would come, and that one offspring of Eve would be the one whom the promise would come through. It's always been God's plan that his people would be redeemed through the action of one descendant. One seed of Eve, one seed of Noah, one seed of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, one seed or offspring of David, that is Jesus. And that his people would be redeemed by a promise. Never did God say we were going to be redeemed by the law. Always God has said it would be the promise. Did Eve have to do anything to receive this promise? When God said to Eve, you're going to have an offspring who's eventually going to crush the head of this enemy, did she do anything to receive that promise? Nothing. In fact, Eve at that point, as we all know, and Adam were lawbreakers. Did Adam do anything to receive? Did Abraham do anything to receive the promise? Nothing. Abraham was a lawbreaker, just like all of us. Abraham went on from that day of promise and basically told a couple of kings that they could sleep with his wife as long as they left him alone. I mean, where does your marriage go after that conversation, right? Like, honey, if you could just sleep with this king so that he's not angry at me, that would be great, you know? And then he doesn't do it once, he does it twice. I mean, so 
so these are not people that are promise keepers, okay? Adam, Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. Is David a promise keeper? No. Are they law keepers? No. They didn't have to do anything to receive the promise. God made the promise. They did nothing. They simply had to trust and believe and receive it. And so Paul phrases this whole thing most completely, I think, in 2 Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, 20 to 22, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has already put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Look at what Paul says there. All the promises of God find their yes in him, speaking of Jesus. It's in Jesus that all the promises of God come true and are made and come to us. And it can't be much clearer than that. In Christ Jesus, we don't suffer the curse of the consequences of the law. Something that has come before the law is superior to the law. Something that has come before the law, the promise supersedes the law. And what has come before was that promise, and it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And this is what Easter Sunday is about. Easter Sunday is about the confirmation of that promise. Because the tomb did not stay occupied by Jesus. The tomb is empty because he rose again. And that rising of Jesus from the tomb is the confirmation that all of the promises of God are in him. This is my son. In him I'm well pleased. I've raised him from the dead. I will raise you from the dead. If Jesus went into the grave and stayed there, then we would have no hope in the promise of God. You would look at that promise of God and you would say, that's dead and gone. You know, his Messiah came and he's still in the grave. What promise does God have for me? But because the grave is empty, then we can trust in that. The law no longer has any effect. We have victory over our sin. There is redemption because the promise of God is true. And it's real in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's promise is not in the grave. The promise of God is in Jesus who is risen. And so then as we continue in Galatians, Paul summarizes this little argument on the inheritance of the promise. And we're almost done. You kids are doing awesome. We're almost done. Just give me six more minutes. Paul summarizes his argument in the inheritance of the promise. He says, what I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it's no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. And so again, the wording here for Paul is a bit cumbersome when you translate it, but Paul is saying if you try to base the inheritance on law, then you'll nullify the promise. You you can't have both at the same time. We can't, we can't, try and base our hope on the law and base our hope on the promise at the same time. They, they don't reconcile with each other. He says you can't do that. One of them has to go. And what we know is that the inheritance was not according to the law, but it was according to promise. The law was never about inheritance. Our own religion, our own righteousness, our own good works, our own trying really hard to be nice people was never meant to equal for us the promise that God had made with himself and ratified in blood before Abraham. The promise is what Abraham had faith in. The promise is what we put our faith and hope in. And how does that promise reveal itself to us today? Well, as we've seen, it it reveals itself in the resurrection of Jesus and in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The blessing and the promise of Abraham is the coming of Christ and the Holy Spirit after him. 
He says, you receive the blessing of Abraham, the promised Holy Spirit. The promised offspring has come. Jesus has come. He is the promised. He's done what he's promised, and he has set you free by his death and resurrection. And I'll just give you a few scriptures where, where, where the scripture speaks in the same way. Notice how the resurrection is understood by everybody who believes in him. In Acts 13, it says, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That's what we've been talking about. That God has fulfilled his promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. The promise and the blessings of God are in the resurrected Jesus Christ. Or Romans 4, he says it this way, Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, speaking of Abraham again, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raises the Lord Jesus from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and raised because of our justification. It's because we believe in the resurrected Jesus. That's where our belief has to go now. Our belief doesn't go to the promise of Abraham. Our belief goes to the fulfillment. Our faith is in the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham in Christ Jesus, who God raised from the dead. Or in Romans 8, says it this way, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. What's the promise we believe in? That if we trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that it's sufficient for our justification, God promises that we will be raised with Jesus. Or in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but also will raise us up through his power. Or Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So I could go on and on. I could go on and on. It is verse after verse after verse that all point to the same truth. The promise of Abraham is in Christ Jesus, and the promise of God is in the resurrection of Jesus. He, the resurrection, Easter Sunday, is about the revelation of the promise of God. It is the ratification, it is the proof, it is the guarantee, it is the seal that God is faithful to his own promise. That's what Easter Sunday is about. You can see how all these statements for the resurrection are in the, are, are, are the statements of Jesus are in the context of the promise, Right? that God will keep his promise to resurrect us. The resurrection has nothing to do with the law, Paul is saying. The new life that you have has nothing to do with the law. It has nothing to do with how nice a person you are or how hard you try. It has to do with you having faith in the promise the way Abraham did. And to receive the promise of God has nothing to do with us and what we have to do. Eve did nothing. Abraham did nothing. Isaac did nothing. David did nothing. There's only one person who did something. It was Jesus. He did what had to be done to keep the promise. And the resurrection is the proof that God keeps his promises to those who inherit the promise of Abraham. So who inherits that then? Who inherits the promise of Abraham? Well, Romans 9 says, we'll close here. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Who's Paul talking about there? He's talking about us. He's saying, you don't have to trace your lineage back to Abraham. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be part of God's chosen ethnic people. 
He says, the people who are the descendants of Abraham are those who are descendants by faith. You have faith in Jesus Christ. You put your hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're a descendant of Abraham. You are an inheritor of those promises. You are an inheritor of the resurrection life that Jesus came to give us. That is Easter Sunday. So God made a way through his son, Jesus. He made a way through Jesus, the inheritor of the promises of Abraham, that we could receive the Holy Spirit and also have eternal life. And the way God made goes through the cross. There is no way to this promise except through the cross. And Jesus went to that cross so that if we trust in him, that his death was enough and his resurrection is the promise, then we can be called children of God. And that promise is for anyone who wants to accept it and believe in it. The law will not save you. Your good works will not save you. Your religion will not save you. But there is a resurrected Savior who has fulfilled the law. He's become the curse and he's received the promise of God before the law who will rescue you, who will redeem you simply by trusting that he's enough. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Paul is so explicit, that he is just so clear, even in those few words. He points back to your scripture and he says, look at the promise. The promise is where we put our hope. The promise that was made to Eve, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob and David and all down through. It's a promise that they did nothing to participate in, Lord. You did it all. You couldn't have spelled it out any clearer. You had Abraham set the whole thing up and then you went down the aisle by yourself to bind yourself to yourself. Father God, what an incredible promise. And this morning, this day, this Easter Sunday, we celebrate the sign and the seal and the proof that that promise is real. Your son died. He went to the grave, but he rose again. Wow. Father, that's where our hope lies, in nothing else but in the resurrected Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.